Okay, so welcome back to Thursdays at noon. Um, and we are a little bit early, but that's okay because I'm in charge. Uh, so before we start, we're going to uh, read the text that we're in for First Peter. Uh, we're in chapter 3. We're going to end the chapter today. So First Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 18 to 22. So we're going to end the chapter, and then we'll pray, and then we'll start. So let's read. First uh, Peter 3, 18 to 22 says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal from dirt, from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. So let's uh, pray for God's help, and then we'll, we'll go. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, for your word. God, we thank you uh, for Peter's letter to the church, to us. Um, God, help us to trust you in suffering. Um, help us to look to Christ as the example um, and to see him in his triumph and his, re- in his reward for suffering. Um, may that be our encouragement for endurance. May that be what we look to and hope for. Um, and we thank you for your son who endured our suffering for us in our place. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, we're going to start with a really hard question, so it's going to be real, real good. Uh, Christianity is vastly different, as most people will know. Um, and probably one of the bigger questions that you've probably even asked if you just read First Peter or just looking outside, uh, it's a common question, is why do bad things happen to good people? I think naturally that will come up in your heart sometimes, whether you're uh, middle school or you're middle age or whatever. I think we all have that question at some point. Um, and we always panic at how to answer it. And all world, just about all religions try to answer it. They give their attempt, they take a stab at it. And here's just a couple um, ways that it's attempted to be answered in the past. Uh, So Buddhism, in regards to suffering, uh, they say it happens because of something wrong you did. So it's what goes around comes around, right? That's the idea. Um, And it's meant to actually make you hate the pleasures of the world and to endure pain now, to embrace pain uh, for your endurement when you disappear and go to heaven uh, or their idea of heaven. Hinduism states that because of reincarnation, you're actually being punished for evil you've committed in a previous life. But the irony of that is, is uh, being a human is the highest incarnate body you can have. So if you're being punished for previous sins, your life must have been really pretty good to be in a human body. So you couldn't have that many sins to punish for in the first place. But point is, you're being repunished for things you committed while you were in a different body um, until you enter rest. So it's going to be a long time, a long cycle. And Islam says that Allah is doing one of two things. Uh, so God, Allah, for them. He's either watching evil that the devil does, so he's not involved, he's watching, or he is somehow involved in it. Um, and he's doing it so that you'll be a better person, you'll be a better Muslim, you, you have a stronger faith. But the only catch is, uh, besides a lot of things, the main catch is you will go to heaven if Allah wants you to. You can be obedient through suffering, you can try, you can hold the faith, you can trust him. But Allah doesn't have to let anybody in heaven. He's going to want to come. He can just say, nah. Um, even the Prophet Muhammad said he wasn't sure if he would even go or not. 
So suffering even then is kind of, well, it's, it's kind of for your good, but in the end, you may not even know if it's for your good in the first place or not. It may just be worthless. It may just waste your life. Then you have Christianity. You have a very a different way of the problem of evil or why do bad things happen. Um, you have a God who becomes fully man. And what happens is out of the overflow of God's heart, he creates everything. Uh, he creates the universe. He creates human beings, creates the animals, the trees you see, everything you see uh, for his enjoyment and for our, and for our pleasure. Uh, but out of all the creatures that choose to rebel, we choose to rebel. The ones who are designed to enjoy God, we choose to rebel. And instead what God does is he doesn't just deal with evil, which he does, but he deals it with in such a way that's punished. And he gets involved in punishment in so much that he bears the punishment for it, for him, on, on himself, for us. So Christianity has this idea that God's not just sitting idly by. He steps into evil and actually bears the evil that we've done uh, to bring us to him. So he's not just hoping we'll come. Um, all the religions have a God either just sitting and watching or rooting for you. But Christianity has a God who steps in and bears the punishment that we actually deserve um, and hopes to bring us to himself uh, to satisfy justice. And that's, that Christianity does it in such a different way. So suffering is answered um, briefly in the Bible by God does govern and ordain it for your good, but he actually steps into it and absorbs it for our good so we can be removed from eternal suffering. So that's the point. Um, and suffering exists to show Christ. It exists to... Um, glorify Jesus in his death to show us grace so we might enjoy him forever. Um, that's a long thing to get into, but that's the gist of it. And in suffering, Peter's going to show us the example of Jesus. He's going to show us what Jesus did and how we can look to that, look for it, look into it, and hope in it. And the three things that, that we're going to uh, cover are Jesus' substitution for us, um, our salvation in Jesus, and then the world's ultimate subjection or submission to Christ. So, his substitution for us, our salvation in him, and the subjection to him, if you want to maybe put it in a quicker way. Uh, so first Peter takes us to the suffering of Jesus and his substitutionary work in our place. Uh, so verse 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Um, so in verse 17, Peter just ended out by saying, um, Ultimately, God's will, God's hand, God's counsel, God's determining plan is if we suffer or not. Um, God is over. He's not just, well, I hope it doesn't come. He's, he's somehow mysteriously involved in it over it without causing evil himself. So in this verse, Peter goes from that verse to saying, for Christ. So because, so this is the huge example. This is the big crescendo that Peter's going to give us of suffering that is willed by God. That's what we look to. So bad things do happen to good people. That's the question we ask. But if you really think about that, really only actually happened one time in history where bad things did happen to one good person. Um, and not only did it happen, but he bore it. He stepped down to take it for us who are the bad people. Uh, so Jesus, the only perfect, good, and righteous man to ever walk the planet, suffered and died. And so again, the question why they happen to good people, well, you have to understand we're, we're not good. We're not great people. We're not you know, high-five worthy um, Jesus was perfect, yet every bad thing that we've done happens to him. And Christianity stands alone in that. So Jesus is the God-man, uh, perfect and righteous, and by his perfect life he, on earth he earned everlasting life for his obedience. Yet here we read instead that he suffered. So for Christ also suffered. So uh, not just a good man, but the God-man. That's what you, you would say. He's a creator of all things, the perfect and righteous one. Um, he suffered by the very hands that he crafted, uh, by people he made for himself. 
Verse 18 speaks again. Uh, Jesus suffered. He suffered once. Uh, so the idea that Jesus' suffering was a one-time event, it was sufficient for all the sins that he died for. Uh, Jesus did not need to suffer again and again and again. There's no need for another sacrifice. It happened one time. Uh, if you know John 19, and my wife has a tattoo of it. It says, it is finished. So Jesus' work on the cross was finished. is no longer suffering for sins. Um, the full penalty for our sin was absorbed by Jesus on the cross. That's, that is staggering that one righteous man would endure that for us. But again, the question is, if Jesus was sinless, then whose sin did he bear? Because it says once for sins. Again, that's, that's the another thing that Christianity just makes you stand in awe of. The undeserved. So he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So Jesus was crushed. Uh, he suffered. He was betrayed. He was beaten, mocked, whipped, scorned, and stripped naked and nailed to a tree. Uh, for sins that he didn't even know. They were foreign to him. He, he, he did not know sin at all, the Bible says. He takes on our sins as if he lived them, as if he's counted as our life. The righteous God takes our penalty. This is just so simple, but we can't just pass over that verse. So Jesus dies in the place of criminals. The judge is judged in our place. This is the glorious act that we Christians, theologians, and we would call substitution where he hangs in our place. He bears a wrath that was directed and aimed at for us. Um, this, is, this is the gospel. This is what we hope in. Um, Peter in chapter 2, verse 22, says that Jesus committed no sin, nor was there deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews 4 says Jesus was tempted but without sin. And 1 Peter 1.18 says that Jesus was the spotless Lamb of God. So again, just to reiterate, Jesus never sinned. His life deserved it. The wage of sin is death. Well, the wage of Jesus' life is life. He deserves life. But he bore our wages. He took our wages on the cross. Um, he is credited with our sin as if he lived that way. Past, present, future for, for the believer. All your sins. All are credited on Christ. So why would one man suffer in the stead, in, in the way for sinners? Why would he do that? In um, verse 18 gives the, the main portion of the gospel, the, the prime focus for us, the, the good of the good news for us of the gospel, is this, that he might bring us to God. So for Christians, the crown jewel of the gospel, if you want to say that, the, the greatest thing we get is not forgiveness, which that, that is good. I'm glad I'm forgiven for my sins, or not adoption. I'm glad I have a father who loves me unconditionally, but we, we get God, that he might bring us to God. So all those things, adoption, uh, justification, uh, being reconciled to God, our forgiveness, those are all designed to bring us to God. So there's no sin, there's nothing in the, in the way anymore. We're brought to God. We get God. That's the good news of the gospel. We, we get Him. We get what we're designed for. We get to enjoy Him forever. He's our treasure. He is the destiny of all things. He's why all things exist. So this happens because our sins are credited to Christ and we are credited with His righteousness. So again, a simple gospel is if we turn from our sins and trust in Christ, the, the simple thing that happens that's profound is Jesus gets credit with our life, we get credit with His. It's like we're, we're, it's plagiarism in a sense. Uh, we write our name on His account, He writes His name on ours, and we take credit for it. And so when we talk about bad things happening to good people, and man, this is so unfair. Um, I hope we understand that this, verse 18, is, is what is unfair. Uh, the righteous for the unrighteous, the perfect for the wicked, that... That is grace. That is undeserved favor. That is what Jesus came to do for sinners. 
And in that it says he was put to death in the flesh. So again, physically his body, the God-man, the man Christ Jesus, the man. Uh, he died, he was dead, and then he was made alive in the spirit. So he was resurrected from the grave by the power of the spirit. So all of suffering, all of the suffering that Peter's talking about here, he's saying, look to the cross, look to Jesus. He's the righteous one who suffered. We talk about in verse 13, who is it to harm me if you're doing what is good? Well, Jesus did all these things that were good, yet he got nailed to a tree. So Peter's saying, look, look, look to Jesus. He, he's your example. He shows the design of suffering. Um, it exists to bring about grace that we may be saved and enjoy God's grace forever. And in the book of Revelation, we see that the suffering is the focus of our worship, the Lamb who was slain. So we will never stop singing about it. We'll never stop hoping and adoring it. That is what we look to. So suffering Christians look to the suffering servant uh, who suffered in our place under the wrath of God to bring us to God that we might enjoy him forever. Um, and that is by, as verse 17 says, as the Lord wills, as by God's designs, by his plan. It's not random. Um, it is in his, it's in his will. So from, from being substituted for sinners by Jesus, taking in our place, we now see the salvation that Jesus brings. And this is the section of the chapter that is very, very, uh, you really need to look at the verses and kind of follow along. It's it very, very tricky. Um, and we'll get to that verse uh, shortly. So when the suffering Christian looks to the cross, we see Jesus' work. Uh, we see we're saved from God's wrath. But how does that do anything for me now? So I know in eternity, I'm great. I won't have to go um, face God on Judgment Day and be worried. I don't have to worry about Him saying, you've broken my law. What are you going to do? Uh, Jesus took care of that for us. So how does any of that give me assurance now? I think that's where Peter's going next. So look at verses 19 through 21. We'll read that again. Um, so the end of verse 18. In the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So Peter takes us from suffering as one righteous man of Christ, as Christians who were in a world of evil and persecution and suffering. He takes us to, to the, the days of Noah. So if you think about Noah's life in Genesis chapter 6, very similar. Uh, Noah was one of the few righteous men, the Bible says, in that time. And he was around men who were wicked. The world had just gone totally bankrupt morally, according to the Bible. If you read, um, God just looks and says, what are you guys doing? Um, so God is almost ashamed of what we're doing. It's, it's disgusting to him. And Hebrews 11 says that uh, his righteousness came by faith in God's promises. So that's how we know, again, that the commentary on that. But Noah's family stood as the righteous ones in a crooked generation. They're the ones who were the righteous ones. They're the ones who Peter would be writing to. If you think about it, they were the ones who were the only ones who knew Christ. They were the only believers. And 2 Peter, so Peter's other letter, chapter 2, says that Noah preached, or the word, the word is heralded. So we know that during those times, Noah was preaching repentance. He was saying, come to the ark. Come to the ark. Don't turn from your sin. Come to the ark. We know Noah was preaching some kind of repentance, some kind of righteousness he was preaching. And this, this conjecture, but I think we can probably agree that Noah was mocked. There wasn't many people saying, sure, flood's coming, whatever. I'm sure there was slander and joking and you name it. So and I think the implication now kind of makes sense. Again, I like the wording Peter used, a few righteous people. So again, it just, it just seems like as Christians here, just a few of us, like I just... We're overwhelmed sometimes. There's, where, where are the believers? There's so many wicked people. Where are the Christians? So this text really makes a lot of sense with the, the context that Peter's writing here. 
And in verse 19, uh, this, is, this is where it gets a little interesting. So Jesus made alive in the Spirit, in which, so in the Spirit, in which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 11, I want to read it to you. Uh, here's what it says. Concerning this salvation, starting in verse 10, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So in the Old Testament, we see that the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, was involved in preaching through men. He was involved in revealing things and writing prophecies and all these things, revealing who Christ would be. So the Holy Spirit is active in the Old Testament, kind of in a similar way that he is now, but also different. So he was still working in believers. He was preaching through them, empowering them in those times. So that's what we see is happening now in chapter 3, is that same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead was... Jesus was preaching through that Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, through Noah to those who were unbelievers. So if you think of 1 Peter 3.15, where Peter says you need to be ready to make a defense. You've got to be ready. This kind of makes sense. Peter's saying, Noah did it. Christ did it through Noah. You, you guys got to be aware. You need to be preaching. You need to be empowered by the Spirit. So that's what he's saying. And the them, uh, the spirits who are now in prison, so they were... People then, but now their spirits in prison. So that's Peter's parallel there. Where he's saying um, Jesus didn't go to a underworld and preach to dead people in hell. He's the spirits who are now in prison. He preached to then. That's the point Peter's trying to make. So just as we are told to make defense, again we do it to an unbelieving world in verse twenty. It said that they were unbelieving. They rejected. They formally did not obey. Um, and I think it's crucial that Peter talks about God's patience. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So not only was God patient during our suffering, or was God patient during Noah's suffering and our suffering and Christ's suffering, and it's for our good, it's for reasons we don't fully maybe agree with or see God doing, but God is patient, not just for us, but also for unbelievers. Um, God's patience in your suffering is not just meant for us to endure, it's meant for those to see Christ. It's meant it's for our good and for the common grace of those who don't know Christ, that they would see and that's kind of the, the rap that God does not get. Uh, the God of the Old Testament is often mocked as a cruel, vindictive, bloodthirsty, destroying God. That's how we see him. That's how he's said to be by unbelievers. But if you look, Peter's saying, God, this God's patient. He was patient. Um, in Genesis, we see this happening over and over and over. Um, if you know the story of the Canaanites, they were a wicked nation that was against Israelites. Um, if you do the math by just simply looking at the text... Uh, it says that um, God gave them 400 years to repent before their sin was ripe to be destroyed. So 400 years they lived in the rebellion. That is longer than America has been a country. 400 years. And God gave them patience. He was patient. He was patient. God didn't strike down Ab and Eve as soon as they sinned, though he should have. He was patient and covered their sin and shame instead. And again with Noah, we see Noah may have been a righteous man, but he was still a sinner. He wasn't perfect. He was still sinful, and God spared Noah. So God's patience, God's mercy does exist in the Old Testament, even when we maybe fail not to see it. God doesn't delight in bringing wrath. He doesn't smile and say, all right, I can, I can take out some more. God doesn't get happy from it. He, he's quick to save and slow to bring justice. So God is patient in your times of suffering. And your patience, Romans 2 says, his patience is meant to lead you to repentance. So it's meant for us to repent from the evil we do and from those who do evil as well. So know that when God is patient, it's not his, 
anger against you. It's his love for the sinners, his love for you and for sinners. Most uh, theologians will say that it took Noah roughly about 100 years to build the ark. So again, 100 years of continually trusting God's promises, of waiting on God's timing, on preaching and trusting God and being ridiculed, and God still gave time to unbelievers to repent, to come to Christ. And we see God's patience again magnified. So the Spirit of Jesus preaches through a dying world, uh, through Noah, to flee from the wrath to come. And then in verse 20, it talks about, While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, again, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And Jesus comments on this verse in Matthew 24. He speaks about, in the days of Noah, uh, there was eating and drinking and giving into marriage, and basically living out your regular day, but the wrath was coming. So there was just total unbelief of, well, we'll just live our daily lives. Don't worry about God's wrath. It's not going to happen. It's whatever. Make fun of Noah. We're fine. But God's wrath came. But it saved those who were in the ark. So that's the point, is there was salvation from God's wrath in the Old Testament. Um, I've heard it said before that uh, the Bible is a hymn book. You probably think, well, no. But then the caveat is that it's all about him. So that, that's the cheesy way to say that. But all the Old Testament is, it's a foreshadowing who Jesus is and what his work is going to accomplish. So Jesus is the ark that Noah got on. He is the ark that we get on to escape God's wrath. Um, by turning from our sin, trusting God's promise, we come aboard the ark, and the judgment that's meant for the world doesn't get us. We're safe in the ark. The, the wrath passes under and passes away, and we are, we're safe. So we're hidden in Christ, we're hidden in the ark. Uh, the people in the days of Noah were destroyed by water, but we are brought through the water on the ark. That's yeah, a life. We are spared by God's wrath. So in a sense, they were saved by water. Uh, they're saved in the ark, but through the water. That's Peter trying to get out here. And then comes the verse 21. Uh, before I talk about it, I want to give a little explanation. So verse 21, um, out of all the things in the, in the, in the Bible uh, that make us say, yeah, this is God's word because I'm not that intelligent. Um, I really need God to reveal these things. Uh, verse 21 is a verse that has, I had different views on in regards to what exactly is Peter trying to say? What's the point of this? What is... How does it correspond to this? How does it save you? All these things. Um, and so there's good news. The good news is all people who agree on this agree that Jesus alone saves. So that's, that's praiseworthy. That's good that the death of Jesus saves sinners. The disagreement is what does baptism play in that? How, how does it correspond to this? So again, um, guys like John MacArthur, John Piper, uh, D.A. Carson, they have some views that differ slightly in some things. Um, even some godly men like Calvin and Luther, they have some agreement, but a little bit of disagreement. But again, um, it's harmony. We can agree that the essentials are there, that Christ alone saves. But anyway, um, I want to give you a little caveat that I'm not the authority on this text. So, so verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, so that this is the floodwaters, right? Now saves you, not as a removal from dirt from the body. So now baptism, so he's going back to the flood. Now baptism... It's not an outward washing, is what Peter's trying to say. It's not like you're taking a shower. It's not a free dunk. It's not an outward physical property action of washing away dirt. It's not a physical thing only. Um, but it acts, if you look, as an appeal to God, to, uh, appeal to God, I'm sorry, for a good conscience. So the Greek word for appeal can be translated in some texts as response. So baptism is the response that we show for our repentance. It's the response that we show outwardly to God. 
Um, it's not just a physical dunking that we get baptized. It's a, it's a physical response that we see outwardly of our turning to Christ, of our going to the ark. That's what Peter is, is going for here. So our baptism points to Jesus' baptism or his judgment that he endured on the cross, his wrath that he endured, the floodwaters he endured. The Christian baptism is a way of saying that we are united to Christ in his death and his burial and resurrection. We are united with him. We're reminded of God's promises to bring us through judgment. Um, it is a pointer to the finished work of Christ. Um, it's good because baptism is a physical thing that, that you can go through. You can say, I, I'm, I'm with Christ. I'm bonded to him because of my faith. This is symbolizing it. Helps me to physically, tangibly see. Uh, D.A. Carson says this, a New Testament scholar. Um, baptism in the first century was so bound up, or paired up, right, with salvation that when you were converted, you were baptized. You could refer to the part of the experience and refer to the whole. So I got a really weird analogy. It might be helpful. For me, it is. Um, Southern Illinois has a lot of farm people. Okay, I, As you can tell, I'm not one of them. But I do know some weird language, if you say, if, and this may, may, may be more old time, but I don't know how I know this. But if you were to ask somebody um, how many cows they have, it's been said to say, oh, I got about a thousand head. Now you think and you say, so you have a thousand cow heads just sitting in your, in your acres. That is weird. But referring to the part, referring to the whole. So there's like, no, you mean a thousand actual cows. So the part of the cow they're referring to is the assumption of the whole cow. If that, so for me, that helps to me understand that baptism is a reference to the whole, that you're saved. Right, that's what Peter's trying to get at here. Um, not a thousand cow heads, but that you're saved. So too with our experience with Christ and baptism, it's the whole of salvation. So, so how are we saved? Not by washing the dirt from the body, but our appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. So we're saved through our appeal through the resurrection of Christ. So our response to God is our climbing into the ark of Christ to be saved from the judgment of God. And that's demonstrated by our, our outward baptism to symbolize our union with Christ. So Christian, in the days of Noah, there is eating just like there is now. There is drinking, people being given into marriage. And yet God's wrath is, is coming. There's a flood that's going to be coming. And I feel like we feel like, God, when is it going to come? Like, I'm waiting. I'm suffering. I'm in pain. I'm tired. People are, hate the gospel. They hate me. And I think Peter's trying to say, it's, it's coming. Just be patient. Judgment's coming. And for the Christian, we are spared from that judgment. We don't have to worry about it. The wrath that's coming, we are spared from. We are in Christ. We're in the ark. We are kept away from God's wrath. And we are endured because of Christ. And I think that's Peter's trying to get at here. Uh, the evil in the world is going to happen, but Christ and his justice will prevail. We are in him. Um, his work that we're baptized into, that saves us. His work saves us, that, that we trust in, that we are baptized into. That's what saves us. So now as Peter closed the letter, he does so in a triumphant way, if you will say. He does it in a very encouraging way. And when you look to the life of Jesus in the New Testament, you see that he endured all this pain, all this suffering. Um, again, though that he was righteous. And I think a lot of times as Christians, when suffering happens to us, we're kind of like, well, that's weird. I thought I was supposed to be liked. You know, like, I'm, I'm being good. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm being nice. I go to church, but, you know, I get made fun of or goody two-shoes or beat up or whatever. You name the country, is different and uh, more extreme. I think we're surprised. Um, let me read you Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10. He says this, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the, the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. This is, this is the crucial part. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, so 
Satan, right? The slanger for Satan. How much more will they malign those of his household? So if Jesus got crucified, what do we expect? We're, we're, we're going to get beat. We're going to get persecution in, in a same but different way. What do we expect? So we live in the wake of Jesus' suffering, know that we're going to live in the wake of his resurrection. So we identify with him in his death and his suffering, but the good news is Jesus gets a reward for his suffering. Look at verse 22. This is where Peter rounds it out. So through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Jesus was killed, crucified, buried, raised to life, and then he ascended uh, in the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So it's the idea that, yes, Jesus is God, so it's not he just earned something he didn't already have. But Jesus, as the God-man, the, the, the humanity of Christ, was given all authority to reign because he is God. So this is what it means when it says Jesus was given these things. He didn't already have them as a man, but he did as God. I think that's the distinction we need to make clear here. Uh, I want to read you a verse. Um, it's very interesting. Um, if I were to hear it from a pulpit, I'd probably think it's almost blasphemous. Um, but it comes from Jesus' mouth. I want to read this to you. Uh, Revelation 3.21, this is what it says. To the one who conquers, so as to his suffering and conquering your suffering and enduring your suffering, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That is a crazy statement in the Bible that we're going to sit somehow with Jesus on his throne of the universe, as he said with his father. So, same but different. There's distinct but different. Uh, Jesus is the only one at the right hand of God, so he's God's right-hand man, so to speak, that they're co-rulers, right? But we get to somehow sit under Jesus and rule with him, but not as God, but under him, but also ruling with him. Yep. That's what we get for our suffering. That's reward for Jesus' suffering he grants to us. We get to rule and sit with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, Jesus reigns with God the Father. He sits on the Father's throne, as he just said. He rules supremely over things as God with God. And we will somehow rule under him, but with him. So Jesus is really cheesy, but again, it's, it's a way not to misrepresent terms here. Uh, Jesus is the company owner. We are store managers. So we rule with him, but under him. That's, that's, that's the distinction, right? Uh, we, we don't rule as God because we're not. But we rule under him, but with him. And this is, this is how it has to be. Romans 8 says this. If you are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So Jesus' suffering earned him a reward to rule. And in our suffering, we get granted to rule with him. That's, that's our hope, is to rule with Christ. So the question we should be asking is, why do all these good things keep happening to us bad people? This is grace upon grace. This is the amazing grace of the gospel that we get. So this is meant to be our, our encouragement when we suffer that. We're going to be saved from judgment and be over the world in the new heavens with Christ. We're going to rule with him. That's, that's a suffering example that Jesus lived that we get to share with. And until that day, we're called to know this. Look at verse 22 again. The right hand of God in heaven with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So all the evil ever done to you, all the suffering brought about by wicked men and harsh rulers, difficult bosses and hard marriages and pain and sorrow and hardship and calamity and all these things. 
are under the rule and authority of Christ. Um, from second, from I'm sorry, from First Peter chapter two thirteen uh, to three seven, he's used the word subject numerous times. It's be subject to your wicked ruler, be subject to your governing authorities, be subject to your husband wife or husband wives, be subject to this, submit to this, trust the authority, lean into this. And Peter ends the chapter by saying, ultimately all things are subjected to Christ. That's, that's our hope, that all things are under his rule, under his care, under his godly ordaining of the world. Uh, angels, authorities, powers, so you name it, it's under it, right? Um, Psalm 2 says that God sits in the heavens and laughs as wicked men try to usurp his rule. God laughs because counsel will stand. Jesus tells Pilate in chapter John, or in John chapter 19, the only reason why Pilate can give him over to be crucified is because the power has been given to him by God. And Isaiah 56 1 says that God sits in the heavens and the earth is his footstool. So the suffering we endure, is, it's God's footstool. It's, it's not fearful to God. He rules over it. And then Jesus himself says he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So friends, in our suffering, the Lord Jesus reigns all things. He is the king of all evil kings, the Lord of all wicked rulers. No one can stay his hand or question him and ask him, what is he doing? He is reigning now and forevermore. So in our suffering and union with Christ, we shall one day rule with him in the new heavens. That is our hope. That's what we, that's what we look forward to to that day. All evil will be made right. The judgment of Christ will come. will wipe out all the evils done. Justice will be satisfied. We'll be united with Christ on high and grant to sit with him and under him. And we shall ere his people be all glory be to Christ. I'm going to read a verse and then uh, we'll close. Revelation 5, 9 says this, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take away the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So we look to Christ's suffering in our place for us. We look to his salvation for us in our judgment for the world. We look to Christ's ascension and reign over all. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. Um, God, we thank you for transferring our sin debt, our, our transgressions against you um, to your son. You've transferred them to him. Uh, he was counted as the life we lived. We are counted as the life he lived. Um, God, you keep giving these glorious, great things to us who are bad people. God, help us to look to your son in suffering, to his example, to his suffering in our place. Help us to look to the judgment that's coming that you've saved us from. Help us to look to the reward that your son earned for us, that we will sit with him and be heirs with him. In your son's name we pray. Amen.